Today's scripture reading is found um, in Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 21, and can be found on the page 978 in the Pew Bibles. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Myra. Good morning, all. How y'all doing today? How were you doing yesterday? I mean, yesterday was a nice day. Hope you got out a little bit and uh, had some time enjoying the beautiful weather. Hope you were with us uh, this past Sunday, or if you were with us this past Sunday, that was a great uh, that was a great time being together celebrating the Lord's Day. If you were not with us, maybe you were out traveling with family or friends, but I hope you were able to have an Easter. Uh, Sunday celebration uh, somewhere, wherever you were. But it was great uh, reminding each other of the resurrection of the Lord. The whole uh, Holy Week experience was great. And uh, as I have mentioned a number of uh, weeks ago, uh, following Easter, we're starting up a new four-week series called Essential Church. And it's always a little bit of a trick uh, as a preacher when you introduce a new series because you have to do the series introduction and then you have to do the sermon introduction. So it takes a little bit extra time. So my daughter, she always complains that I preach too long. And so this series introduction does not count as part of the sermon time. I just want to say that up front. So if you're going to start your clock, don't start your clock until I get to this, this sermon introduction. All right? So I just want to preface that. In any case, why this sermon series, Essential Church? 2020 and 2021 uh, were tough years for the church at large, not just our church, uh, but the church at large across uh, North America, really around the world. And many churches during the pandemic began, uh, moved towards a live stream of their services, which was, which was better than nothing. And thank God uh, for the live stream. But the isolation and the disconnection that came from the live stream, from not being together. Initially, that was hard on, really, on everybody. And I think you can think back and think uh, not just your church experience, but even just more generally school experience. For those of you uh, were trying to, uh, students were trying to do a live stream school. That was miserable, right? Miserable for parents, miserable for everybody. And, um, but, but it was hard, all the isolation and connection. And it was hard for us here at church as well. But you know, you can get used to just about anything. And over two years, a lot of Christians got used to going to church in their living rooms on TV. And then over time, they got used to not going to church at all. And gradually, what was intended as a stopgap, a temporary measure, became a stopping point altogether. And if you look at some of the statistics about church attendance or church engagement over the last two years, the numbers are hard to pin down a little bit, but a lot of the reporting would say that about a third of folks that used to attend church before the pandemic now no longer attend church. 
And it hasn't been quite that bad for us here at Calvary, but we've had a significant drop-off as well uh, here in our own experience at Calvary. And the past two years of live streaming has raised some important questions about how necessary it is for our faith that we actually get up out of bed, put on clothes, brush our teeth, and drive or walk to church to sit in a room with other people. I mean, why go through all the trouble of actually going to church? We can hear the service just as well on our TVs sitting on our couch at home. Are we really missing anything? So it's in that context with that question that we introduce this sermon series, Essential Church, looking to answer the question, just how essential is it really that we actually come to church. So as I reflected on this question and thinking about this question, I want us to think about it in the larger context of the church's calling to make disciples. Is attending a church in the flesh really a crucial aspect of Christian discipleship? The staff and I, the ministry staff and I, have talked about the larger issue of discipleship and the overall mission of the church, we developed a graphic that helps to clarify three vital components of Christian discipleship. We're using this graphic kind of for the whole entire series, but you can see it here more detailed. There are three basic components to Christian discipleship or to our faith. There's worship, there's fellowship, and there's also mission. Each component is essential to the Christian faith and also to discipleship. So worship orients us towards God, who is the source and summit of our faith. Fellowship orients us towards one another, which is the body of Christ. And then mission orients us towards the world and the spreading of God's love out into the world. And when all three components are working together, then you get discipleship. So discipleship is what happens when you have all three of these components activated. So for the first three weeks of the series, we're going to be looking at each one of these spheres, one per week. But I thought this was a four-week series, you say. You're missing a week. So that's so perceptive of you. And the fourth week, we're going to be looking at a fourth component of discipleship that lies at the beating heart, at the very center of the entire Christian enterprise, the love of Jesus. Not the love that we have for God, not just the love that we have for each other, not the love that we have for the world, but at the very center of the discipleship enterprise, at the very center of what it means to be a Christian is Jesus's love for us, God's love for us in Christ. That's the fuel that animates the entire discipleship enterprise. So that's going to be the subject of our fourth sermon. All right, so that was the series intro. And we begin this week looking at the first sphere of Christian discipleship, worship. You can begin your clocks now. All right. So we begin with the first of these spheres of discipleship, worship. And when we talk about worship, we use that language of worship. We often most immediately think about singing on Sunday mornings, like what we have just been doing here as we gathered together. And worship is much broader than singing, of course. 
Worship is most fundamentally, it's offering ourselves to God as living sacrifices. So Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about the, we, we are called to offer ourselves wholly to God, our bodies, our souls, all of who we are to God as a living sacrifice. That, Paul says, is our reasonable act of worship. That is what we should be doing. So offering ourselves to God as living sacrifice, this is not something that we do just here on Sunday mornings for an hour and a half, but it's what we do Monday through Saturday as well. And it's not just with our voices that we worship, but we worship God with our whole lives. Worship is a whole life, whole self sort of thing. But corporate singing on Sunday is not an incidental aspect of our calling to worship. And since that's the aspect of worship that was most compromised during the pandemic, that's the aspect of worship that I want to focus our attention on this morning. So our primary text is Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. And if you have your Bibles open, still uh, keep it there uh, to this text. We'll be making some comments on it throughout. And as we begin to engage with this text, it's worth pointing out that we are indeed instructed to sing together. So I mean, think about it, like Christians gather together and we sing, and like, why do we do that? Like, why do we gather together and sing? Well, it's a big part is because we've been told to do it. And so it's passages like here in Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, where Paul tells us that we should address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in our hearts to God. Christians have been singing together since day one of the church, since the very beginning of the resurrection. And of course, that's a carryover from our Jewish heritage, because the, the Jewish uh, roots out of which Christianity spring also gather together in singing worship. The entire book of Psalms is in many ways, it's like a hymn book of faith or of singing uh, for the Jewish people. And so we've picked up, Christians have picked up the the psalm singing, and then other spiritual songs and hymns have been added to it. But this idea of singing is as, is as old as the people of God. We have always gathered together to sing. But that begs the question of why. Why is singing part of the Christian faith? So as we consider this role of corporate singing, I want to organize our sermon around two related questions. The first is, why do we sing? Why do Christians sing? Why are we called to sing? But the second question gets to this bigger question of the past couple years. Why are we called to sing together? What is important about us gathering together, real presence with each other, and singing together? So I got three reasons for each of these questions. Why do we sing, and then why do we sing Together. So our first question is, why do Christians sing? And here's the first reason. Because singing gives us an opportunity to engage God with our hearts. So in verse 19, in our text here, Paul connects singing with the heart. He says, sing and make melody to the Lord with your heart. Singing and the heart are connected. Psychologists and social scientists talk about the difference between left brain and right brain. And all of us have, have heard this distinction before. Very generally speaking, the left brain is where a lot of our logic and our reasoning happens, and the right brain is where a lot of our relating and our emoting happens. So poems, paintings, sculptures, 
songs, relationships. These are all right brain activities. Math, science, engineering, medicine, these are all left brain activities. And God created us with both sides of the brain because we need both sides of the brain to navigate life. We need both our emotive and our affective aspect of the right brain, and we need our logic and our reasoning of the left brain to navigate life. All thinking with no feeling would be like a skeleton without flesh. And all feeling with no thinking would be like a pile of flesh with no skeleton. The both are needed to come together to make a living, active human being. One isn't better than the other. Both are vital. And so when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, the greatest commandment is that we should love God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. Our heart and our mind are both vital aspects of what it means to love God. We love God with our minds and also our hearts. So to love God, we need both. And the Christian worship service is built around that basic insight. The worship service is not exclusively left brain, nor is it exclusively right brain. There are affective and emotive aspects of a worship service, and then there are logical and reasoning aspects of a worship service. And broadly speaking, the sermon engages the mind while the singing engages the heart. Singing as part of the worship service reminds us that God is not an idea to be thought about. He is a person to be loved. Just like you and me in our personal relationships, God wants to be experienced. He wants to be felt. And the relationships that matter most to us we want our presence in the lives of those that we care about relating to to have an impact, to be felt. God wants to be felt in our lives. And he wants to experience us experiencing him. It's just like every other relationship we have. Because relationships without love and feelings and mutual experiences are basically dead, non-life-giving relationships. Now, it may not be wise to base relationships solely on feelings, but loving relationships can't be devoid of feelings either. So that's why we sing each week. That's why we always close our services with a song. And the point of singing is not simply a trick to smuggle in more sermonizing or teaching. Right? Sometimes I think we can think that, right, is that the most important thing about church is that we learn things about God, and so we sing as a way of, like, learning things about God. But we don't sing to learn things about God. It's not as though I knew that you wouldn't be able to handle an hour and a half service, so I only preach for 40 minutes, and then we sermonize the, the, the singing in song for another 40 minutes. It's not like that, right? The point of the singing is so that we can experience God not just think about God. That's the, that's the function of singing because God wants us to experience him with our hearts. Now, some of you I know, you love singing as a, as a form of worship. That 
makes sense to you and you resonate with that. Maybe that's your favorite part of coming to church, which is great. And some of you, though, perhaps you could take it or leave it. You're, you're content to wander into church 15, 20, 25 minutes late. As long as you get here before the sermon, you feel like you've gotten what you really needed out of church. But the worship that we engage in before the sermon is not just warm up for the real thing. It itself is the real thing. Because God is wanting us to love him with our hearts and with our minds. And it's important that we have both. There's no judgment either way, depending on what you prefer. It takes both kinds, I think. And some of us are going to lean a bit more to the right brain. Some of us are going to engage in the world a bit more with the left brain. But if you're prone to engaging the world and God with the left brain, don't feel bad about that, but just lean to and recognize that there's more that to be brought in with the right brain, the experience of God, and that's what singing is tapping into. Just like it would be a stilted marriage if a marriage remained entirely intellectual and rational, so too our relationship with God would be stilted if we made it exclusively or even primarily intellectual Irrational. God invites us to love him from the heart, and that's why he has given us song to approach him and to experience us, to experience him. So the first reason we sing in our worship is because singing gives us an opportunity to engage God with our hearts. All right, the second reason we sing is because singing elevates or raises the affections. The second point follows off of verse 19 and this point that we're making here about how we're called to engage God and to love God with our hearts. Singing doesn't just help us engage God with our, infection, with our affections. Singing actually increases or elevates our affections. Jonathan Edwards, uh, you may have heard of him. He was a pastor and a theologian during the days of the American colonies. And uh, often said to be one of America's, if not America's, most important theologian. And during his day, there was a revival that broke out, swept up and down the North Atlantic seaboard, and impacted all the colonies. You can read about the revival uh, and even in your secular textbooks. It's a big moment in American history or pre-American history. And during these days of revival, one of the the notable aspects of the revival that was impacting all of these towns and communities was corporate singing in the churches. That was something that, that became prominent during those days in ways that it had not been quite before. And so there were many uh, pastors that were skeptical of the revival, and they were skeptical of the revival because of all the excessive singing that came along with it. Oh, that was one of the things they were skeptical about. But Jonathan Edwards was encouraged by the revival, and, and he took pen in hand, and he wrote a now famous defense of the revivals called Religious Affections. And in the book, he defends the singing, the corporate singing of the revivals. And here's a quote from the book. He says, And the duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and do it with music, but only that such is our nature and frame, that these things have a tendency to move our affections. And I think he's got a very right insight about how human beings actually work. 
I think all of us have probably had the experience that Jonathan Edwards is talking about, not just related to church, but just more generally how music impacts us and affects us. Music doesn't just express feelings. It actually elevates feelings. It's why sports teams have walkout music, right? Because they're getting amped up and jazzed up for the coming moment. They're trying to heighten their emotions and their feelings in anticipation of the event. God has made human beings in the way that he has made human beings. Music speaks to us at a heart level, and it raises our affections and emotions. Music is like blowing on a fire. It feeds and it animates what is already there. So you're feeling happy. A happy song will make you feel happier. You're feeling angsty. An angsty song will make you feel angstier. Right? Music amplifies and elevates what is already present. And because God wants us to feel something about him, he invites us to sing about him as a way of elevating our affections with regard to him. So the first reason we sing in our worship is because singing gives us an opportunity to engage God with the hearts. And the second reason we sing is because singing elevates our affections and our hearts. All right, third reason we sing is because singing lowers our inhibitions and encourages intimacy with God. Paul makes an interesting connection here in verse 18 between getting drunk on wine leading to debauchery and being filled with the Spirit leading to worship and praise. Our translation here reads, uh, and do not get drunk on wine for that is debauchery. Now, Most translations will read it, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. I think that's probably a better way of of writing it uh, and more accurate to the the way that Paul wrote it. Uh, But Paul is not saying that getting drunk on wine is debauchery as much as he's saying getting drunk on wine will lead to debauchery. And he's connecting this getting drunk on wine, which leads to something else, to being filled with the Spirit, which leads to something else. And he's made this connection because the way that wine and the Holy Spirit both work have parallels with each other. So to see these parallels, let's talk just a bit about wine. Most basically, I think as relates to the point that Paul is making here in this passage, wine does two things. It lowers inhibitions, and it increases our capacity for intimacy. The more wine that we drink, the more our inhibitions drop away, and the more prone we become to disregard the consequences, whatever the consequences are. We become less concerned about the consequences of life the more wine that we drink. Our inhibitions are dropping away. And this is why wine, or alcohol generally, makes us more open to intimacy. Because intimacy can be scary. And we're prone to self-protect. And our tendency to self-protect gets in the way of intimacy. And so a glass or two of wine at a dinner party among friends makes us more comfortable and more comfortable be together with each other and more self-disclosing with each other, and it increases intimacy with each other. Or a glass or two of wine for one's wedding anniversary helps to relax the tensions that reduce the inhibitions that would otherwise get in the way of marital intimacy. 
So alcohol reduces inhibitions that then open up way for more intimacy, which, as a side note, alcohol at the frat bar with a bunch of college co-eds is doing the same thing, but with much less salutary effects. Right, so we, there's, there can be a good use of alcohol, I suppose, in that it reduces, uh, inti- reduces inhibitions that lead to increased intimacy. But there are times when we probably should not be reducing inhibitions that, lead, uh, to, that get in the way of intimacy. But the Holy Spirit, Paul is connecting these two because the Holy Spirit in worship works in essentially the same way. When we are filled with the Spirit, our natural inhibitions fall away, and we become more open to intimacy with Jesus. So Paul is basically saying, don't get drunk on wine. Get drunk on the Holy Spirit. Don't fill yourself up with wine, which will decrease your natural inhibitions and, and, and move you into ways that are going to be debaucherous, but fill it up with the Spirit, which will take away your spiritual inhibitions and will usher you into intimacy with Jesus. Singing is a visible expression of being filled with the Spirit. And it is part of the way that the Spirit lowers our spiritual inhibitions and eases us into our spiritual intimacy with Jesus. I mean, have you ever come to church feeling disconnected from God, just closed off to God? I remember that happened to me once. It was probably back in like 2015, maybe one time. No, I'm just kidding. That was a joke. Because very often, I come to church feeling kind of just spiritually shut down, right? And I'm sure you've had that experience as well, right? Generally speaking, you like going to church, but there are times when it's just like, ugh, just feels like a chore, right? And we come to church feeling closed off to God, but then we walk into the, into the room in the worship and we hear the corporate singing of the people of God, And our hearts are stirred and we are invited back through the singing into a place of sweet communion with God. And it's supposed to be like that. That is the point of the singing. That's precisely why we're told to sing in church. Singing in church is like wine among friends and lovers. It lowers our inhibitions and it paves the way for communion with Jesus. All right, so the three reasons we sing. First, singing gives us an opportunity to engage God with our hearts. Singing elevates our affections. And then third, singing lowers our inhibitions and encourages intimacy with God. Now, all those three reasons for singing are great, but they're just as true if you are alone driving in your car or alone in your bedroom listening to Spotify or wherever you listen to your music. We need to move to our second question. What's the point of singing together? What's the value or why are we called to sing together? So three reasons for why we're called to sing together. First reason, because our corporate singing allows us to influence each other's affections for God. Paul tells us in verse 19 that we are to address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This word address most literally means speak or communicate. And the fact that we're told to address one another, to address each other with singing, underscores the point that our corporate singing is not just for God. 
but it is also for each other. Singing in the church is, at least in part, a time of testifying, testifying about God to each other. Me to you and you to me about how God has been good to us. And remember, we're not just testifying to each other about our ideas of God. We can do that in our Sunday school classes. We can do that perhaps uh, after the service, whatever the case might be. But we're testifying to each other about our affections for God, our hearts for God when we sing together. When I see and hear your heartfelt enthusiasm for God, it inspires my own heartfelt enthusiasm for God. And that's Paul's point about why we should be singing to each other, singing with each other, singing in the presence of each other. Now listen, you guys are all second service attenders, and I love worshiping second service. But in the first service, I, am, I embarrassed someone in the first service, but he's not here this second service, so I'm going I'm to go a little harder this service than I did the first service. <laughs> But in the first service, it's a particularly sweet time of worship. And if you've ever been in the first service, you might know what I'm talking about. But I always sit down here in the first service, and it's so sweet because I am like, I am like a arm's length away from Gennard, who sits right over here. And if you've ever worshiped with Gennard, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because his enthusiasm and his joy for the Lord, it's palpable and it's infectious. And so I love being down here and just hearing him in the back and his hallelujahs and his amens and his clapping and his praise of the Lord. It's just so wonderful. And if we have someone in this service who wants to fill Gennard's spot, you are welcome to do that, you know. But the thing to be said about Gennard, it's not just about Gennard, it's that quite apart from how the music is impacting him, right, he's impacting me how he's worshiping and celebrating and loving his experience of God. And so my experience of God is elevated and increased because of his experience of God. And if Gennard, and a couple of weeks ago, he had some health thing that he had to stay home. And so he was probably at home on the live stream praising the Lord. But you know how much that impacted me? None. Didn't impact me at all, right? Because I wasn't able to experience him experiencing God, right? And so when we all stay home, we don't all stay home. But if we all were to stay home, right, like back in the days of the height of the pandemic, right, and we're not gathered together, we can't experience each other experiencing God, and we can't raise and elevate each other into new places of enthusiasm and joy. Our capacity to influence and to be influenced by each other necessitates real presence with each other. Our energy can't travel back up the live stream and impact us here in this moment. And I love worshiping with you all, but I'm a, I'm a better worshiper when I'm with you than when I'm by myself. Right? I need you to help me worship, and you need me to help you worship, and we all need each other to help each other worship. And I hope that my presence with you all doesn't just benefit me, but that it benefits you too. Listen, we don't all need to be overtly demonstrative or enthusiastic not everyone can be Gennard. I cannot be Gennard, right? But we all do need to be present and we all need to be sincere. In whatever ways we are wired up in our personalities that God 
has made us. Just being present in your own sincere and honest way is an encouragement to the body. And it provides an opportunity for the body to be an encouragement back to you. And all of that is an encouragement to Jesus, who is the real reason we're here to sing anyway. So the first reason we sing together is because our corporate singing, why we sing together, is because our corporate singing allows us to influence each other and to be influenced by each other in our hearts for God. The second reason that we sing together is because our corporate singing provides us with an opportunity to submit to each other. Look at verse 21. It's an interesting connection here that Paul makes. He links together corporate singing and corporate submission. He says that our singing enables us to give thanks, and that sort of makes sense, right? Filled with the Spirit, addressing one another with all psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Giving thanks. Well, that makes sense because when we're singing songs of praise and adoration to God, we're filled with gratitude and thankfulness, and so that makes sense. But then he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And both things are happening when we're singing. We're praising God and we're giving him thanks, and we are at the same time submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Christianity is not every man, woman, and child for himself or herself. We sing one song with one tune. That is the heart of Christianity, that God has called the human race together under the banner of Christ to sing a unified song of praise and adoration to him. And while we can sing with harmony and creativity, the church's singing only works when we all defer to each other. That is so much the heart of Christianity. And it's why Christian corporate singing can be so beautiful. Because we were made for each other. And to be for each other requires us to live in submission to each other. And what makes our corporate unity as Christians unique, different than all the other forms of unity that are out there in the world, what makes Christian corporate unity unique is that we are gathering together under the banner of Jesus Christ. We are saying when we sing together that we have a higher loyalty that binds us all together and that we are not here simply to satisfy our own preferences, but that we were here for Jesus and we are here for each other. Maybe that's the real message of our singing. Corporately, we are acknowledging that we are here for Jesus and we are here for each other. And the song list that we play on Sunday may not be my favorite list of songs. It may not be your favorite list of songs, but that's okay because the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs that we sing are all true about God. They're all true about Jesus, and they minister meaningfully to my fellow brother and sister in Christ. And I'm good with that. And the point is that when we come together to sing, we are not coming together to have our own personal individual ways. But we are coming together corporately to have our way together in Jesus. And every time we gather together on the Lord's Day, 
and enthusiastically sing together from the heart, it is a visible corporate act of submission to each other out of reverence for Christ. And biblical submission really is just that. It's just an act of love to one another. It's loving surrender and deference to the other. And that's why corporate singing together is so foundational to the Christian faith. Because deference and love towards each other, towards one another, is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. And singing together gives us an opportunity to enact that very deference in reality. So the first reason we sing together, together, is because our corporate singing allows us to influence each other in our hearts for God. And the second reason we sing together is because it gives us an opportunity to defer and to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then the final reason that we sing together is because the church's corporate singing is a witness to the world. And this kind of flows off of the point that I just made. It's not explicit here in the text, but I think it's worth drawing attention to. Alexander Spamon was an Eastern Orthodox priest and theologian. He died back in the 80s. But he's been very influential in his theology, and I've read a bit about him I read a bit of his work uh, the last number of years, but he has this line in one of his books. He says, the parish exists as witness to the world. And what Shmeiman means is that the church embodies the truth of the world to the world. The church embodies the truth of what the world is to the world. So often we can tend to think of church as stepping away from the real world, right? This is sort of the mountaintop experience, romanticized. We all come together to have this moment. And then once we're done, we have to go back into the real world, back into the real world, as though the real world is out there. And this is what? What is this? This is the fake world. This is the real world. This is the real world. This is the truth of what the world really is. When we gather together as human beings, living in loving unity with each other, submitting to each other, and deferring to others as more important than ourselves, all living in submission to God and who he has revealed himself to be in his love for us in Jesus, that's the real world, right? So when we come together and we sing corporately, embodying our deference to each other, we are witnessing to the world what the world really is for what humanity was created to be. The visible life of the church is meant to be a picture of the rightly ordered world, which means that ideally, the world should be able to walk in to our worshiping experience on a Sunday morning and should be able to see in how we behave towards each other, and especially related to our corporate singing, to be able to see and come to an understanding of what the world actually was meant to be like. So when we come together in corporate unity and love and mutual submission, we are testifying to the world what the world is for. And we can't do that from our couches with the live stream. We cannot witness to the world what the world is for in our corporate unity without being together corporately, 
That's why it's so vital and important for our mission in the world that we come together in real time, in a real place, and we live together in this moment in harmony and unity and deference and love for each other. All right, so here's some concluding thoughts. The punchline about corporate worship is that corporate worship is necessary and that we cannot do it properly from home. We need each other to worship God in all of God's intended fullness for us. And the live stream was a lifesaver during the pandemic. I mean, thank God for the technology that allowed us to stay connected in the ways that we were able to stay connected through the worst parts of the pandemic. But live stream worship is just a stopgap. It's not a stopping point. Listen, I know that some of you who are watching the live stream regularly, you are shut-ins, and you've gotten to a place or an age in life where you just simply can't come into church every Sunday anymore. And we love you, and we are for you, and I'm so glad that we have the live stream technology that allows you to participate, even if it's not in the fullness measure, but it allows you to participate in the body of Christ that you have come to know and love and have experienced, God. And I'm glad for that. And I know that some of you catch the live stream when you're on vacation or you're out of town, and that's great. And it gives you an opportunity to stay connected to the body of Christ here, and so it allows you to keep a touch point, and I'm glad that you're able to stay connected to us in that way. And I know that some of you catch the live stream when you are sick or you're just not able to make it to church, and that's great too. And so if you're watching this morning because you're not feeling well and you can't be here. I'm glad that you are watching this morning on the live stream. But during COVID, many of us got into the habit of not going to church on Sunday. In the same way that we grew accustomed to curbside pickup at Target, we've gotten used to the live stream on Sunday mornings. Now, keep doing your curbside pickup at Target. I have no issue with you doing that. But worshiping on the live stream falls short of the sort of worship that God intends for us. Not just for his sake, but also for our sake and for each other's sake. The body needs the body. And we're better together. I have one last reason for why it's important to sing together. It's uh, kind of a bonus one. You don't have to pay for this one. And you have to stop the clock, too, because now that this doesn't count towards my sermon time. Um, uh, but Tim Keller is a pastor, has been a pastor in Manhattan, a very thoughtful pastor. And, uh, and he gives another reason for the importance of worship. And... It's connected to life change. Life change, true spiritual life change, happens not just when we hear a sermon, not just when we get, like, ideas about God. Life change happens in the deepest, most profound way when we encounter God in our hearts, when we have an experience of God. This is when the bonds of sin begin to fall away. 
This is when the power of the enemy is broken. We have to experience God. And worship provides this opportunity for us to experience God and life change. So here's this quote from Tim Keller. He says, The secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin is worship. You need worship. You need great worship. You need weeping worship. You need glorious worship. You need to sense God's greatness and to be moved by it, moved to tears and moved to laughter, moved by who God is and what he has done for you. So we gather together on Sundays so that we can experience this God who loves us and has given us his son in Jesus Christ. And it's in that experience of God that our lives are transformed and changed. And singing is a key component of that experience of God. So God loves us. He's called us out together to be with each other and to experience him together so that we can be more of who we were really made to be in him. So let's continue to come together, increasingly coming back together with church, experiencing and singing praises of who God is. Father, thank you that you did not just call us to yourself all in individual isolation so that we were there in our little prayer closets by ourselves, just individuals with our Bibles and Jesus, but that you have called us to that for sure, but you've called us more deeply to be together with each other, that we are better together, that we can't experience the fullness of all that you want us to experience of who you are by ourselves. So God, I pray that you would cause us to keep engaging with you through your body here and that you would cause us to keep engaging with you through singing. God, give us the capacity to experience you even through song, we pray, Lord, in your son's name.